Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway. My podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today, Cormac McCarthy's writing, as we do a one-off episode on his novel, Blood Meridian. Now, typically, when I do novels, I do them in more than one episode. There have been exceptions to that rule in the cases of Walk Me to the Distance by Percival Everett and several other episodes I did in early 2022. But I also recently did The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway in one episode. And if you listen to that episode, you know that I only read 24 pages of it before deciding to stop. And today we're going to play a similar game where we see how far I can get through Blood Meridian without wanting to stop. Um, I read No Country for Old Men, and I really liked it, or at least I remember really liking it back in maybe 2015. And then I went on to Blood Meridian because, of course, that's his most famous book. I also read The Road, which I didn't like. But every time I tried to read Blood Meridian, I ended up stopping at some point. And I got pretty far into it. I think I got halfway through and just stopped. And I have qualms about Cormac McCarthy's writing that many of his fans overlook. For instance, certain attributes of punctuation that for some reason, I guess because he's such a great writer, he doesn't have to invoke in his, or incorporate rather, in his writing. And I know that there's probably someone out there who is a big fan of Cormac McCarthy who's not familiar with me or the podcast, and they're wondering, well, what makes this guy qualified to talk about Cormac McCarthy? Uh, He doesn't understand McCarthy's work. Why would he deride McCarthy on his little know-nothing podcast? Well, it seems like you already answered your question and you shouldn't be listening. If you would like to support the podcast, you may do so by purchasing my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. You can buy many of them for 99 cents on Kindle. If you do not have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone. And I also have music. You can stream it on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you like to listen to music. I released ambient and singer-songwriter and experimental rock stuff under the name Lurking Vowel. Lurking as in lurking around the corner and vowel as in A-E-I-O-U. I also have a TikTok channel that is picking up steam and getting some people to listen to my music. So that's a lot of fun. It's also under the name Lurking Vowel. My latest short story book is Angry Bluebird, and it just came out this past week. And, you know, I did the free giveaway thing for two days on Saturday and Sunday, and I already talked about that last week. But a few more people downloaded the book, of course, after that episode. But aside from that, someone has been reading my stuff through Kindle Unlimited, so I'm seeing their progress as they make their way through Greenskin and Angry Bluebird, and it's kind of weird, because I wasn't sure whether or not they would have liked Greenskin, but I assumed that if they finished Greenskin and moved on to Angry Bluebird, that they enjoyed themselves. So, that's always fun. I don't care if it's one or a million people 
reading my work. I always want to know, do you enjoy this? Because if you don't enjoy my work, I'd rather you not read it. You know, I don't like to read stuff that I don't enjoy. I'm not in high school anymore. I don't have to do that. Oh, the irony of that statement as I get ready to read a book that I don't enjoy on the podcast. And it's not that I think that McCarthy's a bad writer at all. I think he's a fine writer. I also think that Toni Morrison is a fantastic writer, but I don't like anything that she's written. I've read The Bluest Eye and Beloved and probably something else that was assigned in college, and I just never vibed with her. And maybe that's just the case with Blood Meridian. There is a holy trinity for a certain type of guy out there. A literary trinity. Cormac McCarthy, William Faulkner, and Ernest Hemingway. And they kind of fall in the same category as the guys who make infinite jests their entire personality. You know? And that is distinct from the crowd of guys who are into American Psycho for all the wrong reasons, believe it or not. Because most of the guys who are into American Psycho haven't actually read the book. If you've come here for a synopsis of Blood Meridian or information on Cormac McCarthy, I know very little about the man, honestly. And I've read this and The Road, Child of God, I think it is. And No Country for Old Men. And No Country for Old Men is really the only book by him that I enjoyed. And that's probably because I love the movie. And that's interesting because in some instances we see a movie and then we read the book. And the movie itself inspires everything we envision with our reading experience. And other times we read a book and then we go watch the movie, which is always a mistake. Because the movie is usually not too much like the novel because they're two different mediums and therefore a screenwriter has to craft uh, maybe an altered narrative or take out characters here and there, change certain things to make it fit within the medium of film. Now, Blood Meridian has been kind of on the, the table for being made into a film for a while. I know that James Franco wanted to make a film out of it. But having read a good chunk of it, I don't know that it could really be a good movie because the thing about McCarthy's writing in this is that it's kind of in the same league as Morrison and Atwood where after a while I kind of get lost in the language and I don't really know what's going on anymore. And you can blame me for that, sure, but it's not what I would consider quality writing, even though it's technically maybe even objectively good writing you know but the first page page three chapter one it's got an interesting array of terms and phrases here before the actual text starts and that's never a good sign to me but for some people it's a uh, an artistic choice Childhood in Tennessee, runs away, New Orleans, fights, is shot, to Galveston. And then the Reverend Green, Judge Holden, an affray, Toad Vine, burning of the hotel, escape. We haven't even begun the book yet. See the child. He is pale and thin. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. He stokes the scullery fire. Outside, 
lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker woods beyond that harbor yet a few last wolves. His folk are known for hewers of wood and drawers of water, but in truth, his father has been a schoolmaster. He lies in drink, he quotes from poets whose names are now lost. The boy crouches by the fire and watches him. Okay, so an opening paragraph should be one of the best written parts of your novel. It should draw the reader in. And in this case, I know already who is lapping this up and saying, oh my God, this is amazing. Probably a white guy, probably got a beard, maybe a few extra pounds on him, or maybe not enough pounds on him. But you know who I'm talking about. Very specific man. Perhaps he wears flannel from time to time. Maybe he's got black-rimmed glasses. Nothing wrong with black-rimmed glasses. I wear black-rimmed glasses. But he would be the, 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 the kind of guy who would have someone take a picture of him in a coffee house, looking down in a thoughtful way as he's holding some sort of fancy-ass drink. So structurally speaking, see the child, one sentence... It's a command. <laughs> he is pale and thin, comma. He wears a thin and ragged linen shirt. Now, aside from the comma splice, it's interesting that we have these very simple sentences, and then we get into esoteric territory. Outside lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker woods beyond that harbor, yet a few last wolves. None of that makes any fucking sense. And, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough for this. Maybe you think that I'm stupid. That's fine. But that is just gibberish to me. And it's meant to sound perhaps poetic, but, you know, as someone who likes poetry, who writes poetry, who has studied poetry, I think that poetry belongs where poetry belongs. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't belong in novels, but your prose should be a distinct craft, a distinct style and there's this school of thought in academic creative writing, which is almost the school of thought that I come from because I, I've rejected a lot that I learned while participating in the, the circus of academia. But in this case, I would say... Quality writing in a novel does not just randomly throw in posy-sounding sentences, sometimes referred to as purple prose. Now, some people may have a different definition of purple prose. However, this is just garbage. And yes, I'm calling this writing garbage. 
Outside lie dark turned fields with rags of snow and darker snows beyond that harbor. Yet a few last wolves. Yes, I think that line is garbage. And again, you have the option to turn this off. You don't have to listen. I'm going to proceed with no further caution. Night of your birth, 33. The Leonids, they were called. God, how the stars did fall. I looked for blackness, holes in the, in the heavens, the dipper stove. The mother dead these 14 years did incubate in her own bosom the creature who would carry her off. The father never speaks her name. The child does not know it. He has a sister in his world that he will not see again. He watches pale and unwashed. He can neither read nor write, and in him broods already a taste for mindless violence. All history present in that visage, the child, the father of the man. At fourteen he runs away. He will not see again the freezing kitchen house and the pre-dawn dark, the firewood, the washpots. He wanders west as far as Memphis, a solitary migrant upon that flat and pastoral landscape. Blacks in the fields, lank and stooped, their fingers spider-like among the bowls of cotton, a shadowed agony in the garden. Against the sun's declining figures moving in the slower dusk across a paper skyline. A lone, dark husbandman pursuing mule and herald down the rain-blown bottomland toward night. This sounds beautiful to me. And... You may be confused by me saying that. Let me be clear. It sounds beautiful. It's poetic. It's almost like he's writing an epic poem. However, I still don't think that it makes for a good novel. This is not writing that I would I would want to read in a novel. Again, this is all my preference. And so far, while it's one thing to read it aloud, you know, most of us don't read aloud when we're just sitting around reading. We read silently. And with poetry, yes, poetry is meant to be read aloud at some point. It's poetry. But this is being presented as a novel, correct? Let's look through here. Oh, I love this. <laughs> There's a quote from Ralph Ellison here. McCarthy is a writer to be read, to be admired, and quite honestly envied. Yeah. Cormac McCarthy is the author of 10 other novels. Yeah. So this is... This is definitely a novel. This is being presented as a novel. It's not being presented as an epic poem. It's not formatted like a, an epic poem. This is supposed to be a book. You sit down, you read it like any other novel. Although, it may not be. But this is how we're proceeding with it. A year later, he is in St. Louis. He is taken on for New Orleans abroad a flatboat. 42 days on the river... A night, the steamboats hoot and trudge past the black waters, all alight like cities adrift. They break up the float and sell the lumber, and he 
walks in the streets and hears tongues he has not heard before. He lives in a room above a courtyard behind a tavern, and he comes down at night like some fairy book beast to fight with the sailors. He is not big, but he has big wrists, big hands. His shoulders are set close. The child's face is curiously untouched behind the scars, the eyes oddly innocent. They fight with fists, with feet, with bottles or knives, all races, all breeds. Men whose speech sounds like the grunting of apes. Men from lands so far and queer that standing over them where they lie bleeding in the mud, he feels mankind itself vindicated. Again, this is quality writing. I have no idea what the fuck is going on. On a certain night, a Maltese boat swain shoots him in the back with a small pistol. Swinging to deal with the man he is shot again just below the heart the man flees and he leans against the bar with blood running out of his shirt the others look away after a while he sits on the floor he lies in a cot in the room upstairs for two weeks while the tavern keeper's wife attends him she brings his meals she carries out his slops a hard-looking woman with a wiry body like a man's. By the time he is mended, he has no money to pay her, and he leaves in the night and sleeps on the riverbank until he can find a boat that will take him on. The boat is going to Texas. Okay, so, so far, the child has left home. He's gotten shot, and now he's going to Texas. Keep in mind, all the action that has happened here has been described in very plain language. Everything around it has not been. So, it seems that McCarthy is switching between show, don't tell. At times, he is not really showing, just kind of describing things in a, you know mercurial way and then just flat out telling you he's going to Texas he lies in a cot and the oh, I already read that fuck that only now is the child finally divested of all he has been his origins are become remote as is his destiny and not again in all the world's turning will there be terrains so wild and Barbarous to try whether the stuff of creation may be shaped to man's will or whether his own heart is not another kind of clay. The passengers are a diff diffident lot. They cage their eyes and no man asks another, What is it that brings him here? He sleeps on the deck, a pilgrim among others. He watches the dim shore rise and fall, gray seabirds gawking, flights of pelicans coatwise above the gray swells. They disembark aboard a lighter, settlers with their chattels, all studying the low coastline, the thin bite of sand and scrub pine swimming in the haze. This is one of those books that guys will tell you are their favorite. In some means of trying to impress you, and so far I'm not impressed. The Reverend Green 
had been playing to a full house daily as long as the rain had been falling, and the rain had been falling for two weeks. When the kid ducked into the ratty canvas tent, there was standing room along the walls, a place or two, and such a heady reek of the wet and bathless that they themselves would sally forth onto the downpour now and again for fresh air before the rain drove them in again. He stood with others of his kind along the back wall. The only thing that might have distinguished him in the crowd was that he was not armed. Neighbors, said the reverend, he couldn't stay out of these here hell, hell, hell holes right here in Nacogdoches. I said to him, said, you gone to take the son of God in there with ye? And he said, oh no, no I ain't. And I said, don't you know that he said I will father ye? Always, even until the end of the road? Well, he said, I ain't asking anybody to go nowheres. And I said, neighbor, you don't need to ask. He's a-going to be there with you every step of the way, whether you ask it or you don't. I said, neighbor, you can't get shed of him. Now, are you going to drag him into that hell hole yonder? You ever see such a place for rain? This is all supposed to be in dialogue tags, but it's not. This is something that bothers me as a reader. Again, as an author, you want to make your reading experience, your audience's reading experience, smooth, inviting. You know, I guess there's something to be said for books like this or House of Leaves where you have to turn the book sideways and this way and that way, but uh, most people are not into that. Maybe this book wasn't written for most people. However, this is disappointing to me as someone who loves reading because I feel like it would be a lot more palatable if we had ways of distinguishing dialogue from the rest of the fucking writing. The kid had been watching the reverend. He turned to the man who spoke. He wore long mustaches after the fashion of teamsters, and he wore a wide-brim hat with a low, round crown. He was slightly wallied, and he was watching the kid earnestly as if he'd know his opinion about the rain. I just got here, said the kid. Well, it beats all I ever seen. The kid nodded. An enormous man dressed in an oilcloth slicker had entered the tent and removed his hat. He was bald as a stone, and he had no trace of beard, and he had no brows to his eyes nor lashes to them. He was close on to seven feet in height, and he stood smoking a cigar even in this nomadic house of God and he seemed to have removed his hat only to chase the rain from it, for now he put it on again. The reverend had stopped his sermon altogether. There was no sound in the tent. All watched the man. He adjusted the hat, and then he pushed his way forward as far as the crate board pulpit where the reverend stood, and there he turned to address the reverend's congregation. His face was serene and strangely childlike. His hands were small. He held them out. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I feel it my duty to inform you that the man holding this revival is an imposter. He holds no papers of divinity from any institution recognized or improvised. He is altogether devoid of the least qualification to the office he has usurped and is only committed to memory a few passages from the good book for the purpose of lending to his fraudulent sermons some faint flavor of the piety he despises. In truth, the gentleman standing here before you posing as a minister of the Lord is not only a total illiterate, but is also wanted by the law in the states of Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Arkansas. Oh, God, cried the reverend. Lies, lies. He began reading feverishly from his opened Bible. On a variety of charges, the most recent of which involved a girl of 11 years, I said 11, who had come to him in trust and whom he was surprised in the act of violating while actually clothed in the livery of his God. A moan swept through the crowd. A lady sank to her knees. This is him, cried this reverend, sobbing. This is him, the devil. Here he stands. Let's hang the turd, called an ugly thug from the gallery to the rear. Not three weeks before this, he was run out of Fort Smith, Arkansas, for having Congress with a goat. Yes, lady, that is what I said. Goat. Is this the second book I've read on here where we had a goat fucker? Why, damn my eyes, if I won't shoot the son of a bitch, said a man rising at the far side of the tent, drawing a pistol from his boot. He leveled it and fired. The young teamster instantly produced a knife from his clothing and unseamed the tent and stepped outside into the rain. The kid followed. They ducked low and ran across the mud toward the hotel. Already gunfire was general within the tent, and a dozen exits had been hacked through the canvas walls, and people were pouring out, women screaming, folk stumbling, folk trampled underfoot in the mud. The kid and his friend reached the hotel gallery and wiped the water from their eyes and turned to watch. As they did, so the tent began to sway and buckle, and like a huge and wounded Medusa, it slowly settled to the ground, trailing tattered canvas walls and ratty guy ropes over the ground. See, this is a scene. And, you know, I have to say, it would be a much more enjoyable scene if we had ways of more easily distinguishing the dialogue from the rest of the paragraphs. Now, this seems like a scene that you'd find in any other Western, though. But because we have the colorful language here, we're allegedly elevating it. But so far, I'm not buying it. The bald-headed man was already at the bar when they entered. On the polished wood before him were two hats and a double handful of coins. He raised his glass, but not to them. They stood up to the bar and ordered whiskeys, and the kid laid his money down, but the barman pushed it back with a stump and nodded. These here's on the judge, he said. They drank. The teamster set his glass down and looked at the kid, or he seemed to. He couldn't be sure of his gaze. The kid looked down the bar to where the judge stood. 
the bar was that tall. Not every man could even get his elbows up on it, but it came just to the judge's waist, and he stood with his hands placed flatwise on the wood, leaning slightly as if about to give another address. By now, men were piling through the doorway, bleeding, covered in mug, cursing. They gathered around the judge. A posse was being drawn to pursue the preacher. Judge, how did you come to have the goods on that no account? Goods, said the judge. When was you in Fort Smith? Fort Smith? Where did you know him to know all that stuff on him? You mean the Reverend Green? Yes, sir. I reckon you was in Fort Smith before you come out here. I was never in Fort Smith in my life. Doubt that he was. They looked from one to the other. Well, where was it it run up on him? I never laid eyes on that man before today. Never even heard of him. He raised his glass and drank. There was a strange silence in the room. The men looked like mud effigies. Finally, someone began to laugh, then another. Soon, they were all laughing together. Someone bought the judge a drink. So, if I am to surmise correctly, that judge is an agent of chaos. He goes into this tent where they're having a revival service, and he just makes shit up about the reverend. No real evidence to back it up, and of course... Much like the court of public opinion, someone decides that they're going to take justice into their own hands and shoot him. I have absolutely no connection to the kid or the child. The only interest I have in any character here is in Judge. And yet, he's not presented as the protagonist. He's, you know, the antagonist of the novel, but... Or is he? He's much more interesting than this no-name guy who's just wandering around happens to get shot one day. That's not interesting to me. See, if I were writing this, and it's probably a good thing that I didn't, I would start with this scene in the tent. And I would take out a lot of the, you know, unnecessary verbiage and whatnot but it had been raining for 16 days when he met toad vine and it was raining yet he was still standing in the same saloon and he had drunk up all his money saved two dollars the teamster had gone the room was all but empty the door stood open and you could see the rain falling in the empty lot behind the hotel he had drained his glass and went out there were boards laid across the mud, and he followed the paling band of door light down toward the bat-board jakes at the bottom of the lot. I beg your pardon. Let's read that again. There were boards laid across the mud. Okay, I'm following. And he followed the paling band of door light down toward the bat-board jakes at the bottom of the lot. Uh, okay, so he's walking. Okay, he's walking, people. Another man was coming up from the Jakes, 
and they met halfway on the narrow planks. <laughs> Did he mean for that to rhyme? The man before him swayed slightly. His wet hat brim fell to his shoulder save in the front where it was pinned back. He held a bottle loosely in one hand. Jesus. You better get out of my way, he said. The kid wasn't going to do that, and he saw no use in discussing it. He kicked the man in the jaw. The man went down and got up again. He said, I'm going to kill you. He swung with the bottle, and the kid ducked. And he swung again, and the kid stepped back. When the kid hit him in the... The man shattered the bottle against the side of his head. He went off the boards onto the mud, and the man lunged after him with the jagged bottleneck and tried to stick it in his eye. The kid was fending with his hands, and they were slick with blood. He kept trying to reach into his boot for his knife. Kill your ass, the man said. They slogged about in the dark of the lot, coming out of their boots. The kid had his knife now, and then sat down on the planks and pulled on the boots, mud and all. Then he rose and slogged off through the lot to pick something up. I want you to look here, he said, at my goddamned hat. You couldn't tell what it was, something dead. He flapped it about and pulled it over his head and went on and the kid followed. The dram house... Wait a minute, they got into a fight and now they're just walking together? Did I miss something here? Did dumb Patrick come out to play for a second? Did I skip something? Where am I, for God's sakes? Wait, 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 wait. Did I skip a page? The kid had his knife now and they circled crab-wise. I did skip a, two pages, actually. I, you know, I, I honestly, with the way this book is written, I think that says a lot that it didn't really matter. <laughs> I think I just saved us some time. <laughs> All right, so what did I skip here? Because they were fighting and then suddenly they're not fighting. Okay. Oh, Jesus. The man threw down the bottleneck and unsheathed an immense bowie knife from behind his neck. His hat had come off and his black and ropey lock swung about his head and he had codified his threats to the one word kill like a Crazed chant. That's cut, said one of the several men standing along the walkway watching. Kill, kill, slobbered the man, wading forward. But someone else was coming down the lot. Great, steady, sucking sounds like a cow. He was carrying a huge shillelagh, which is a walking stick, people. He reached the kid first. And when he swung with the club, the kid went face down in the mud. He had died if someone hadn't turned him over. When he woke, it was daylight and the rain had stopped and he was looking up in the face of a man with long hair who was completely covered in mud. The man was saying something to him. What? said the kid. I said, are you quits? Quits? Quits, because if you want some more of me, you sure as hell gonna get it. He looked at the sky, very high, very small, a buzzard. He looked at the man. My neck broke, he said. The man looked over at the lot and spat and looked at the boy again. Can you not get up? I don't know, I ain't tried. 
I never meant to break your neck. No, I meant to kill you. There ain't nobody done it yet. He clawed at the mud and pushed himself up. I can literally just skip over to the page where I was and where they're starting to walk together. The dram house was a narrow, was a long narrow hall, wainscoted with varnished boards. You can imagine my pain here when we're reading words like wainscoted. There were tables by the wall and spittoons on the floor. There were no patrons. The barman looked up when they entered and a N-word that had been sweeping the floor stood the broom against the wall and went out. Okay, okay, we have made it to page 12 and I'm almost ready to bail out. And it's not that I take a, a, a tremendous offense at that word being used in a book. It's that, who the fuck is narrating this, for one thing? Okay. This is supposed to be based on historical events that took place on the Texas-Mexico border in the 1850s. However, it is written by Cormac McCarthy who is the narrator of this book. It is a third-person narration. So I would like to think that the narrator is someone who isn't Cormac McCarthy, who is rather a character written by Cormac McCarthy, an unnamed character. Oh, Lord. Because... He's already used the term blacks. He used it on the second page. And yet, instead of saying a black man, he's saying the N-word. And, you know, I understand historical context. I really do. But I would love to bail on this novel at this point, but we will proceed. Where's Sidney, said the man in his suit of mud. In the bed, I reckon. They went on. Toadville, called the barman. The kid looked back. The barman had come from behind the bar and was looking after them. They crossed from the door through the lobby of the hotel towards the stairs, leaving varied forms of mud behind them on the floor. As they started up the stairs, the clerk at the desk leaned and called to them. Toad Vine. He stopped and looked back. He'll shoot you. Old Sidney? Old Sydney, they went up the stairs. This is fucking boring. We are going to skip over to chapter 2, which is page 16. Now come days of begging, days of theft, days of writing where the... where Oh my god. This is so difficult to read out loud sometimes. Days of writing where their road, no soul save he... He's left behind the pine wood country and the evening sun declines before him and beyond an endless swell and dark falls here like a thunderclap and a cold wind sets the weeds to gnashing. The night sky lies so sprint with stars that there is scarcely space of black at all and they fall all night in bitter arcs and it is so that their numbers are no less. Okay, we can... 
go ahead and make the determination that Cormac McCarthy is not my cup of tea. I don't enjoy this kind of writing. I have never been affected by it, never been drawn to it. It's never struck me as quality novel writing or quality storytelling. And, you know, you could pull out one of my novels and say the same about me. I don't give a shit. But I don't like this. Okay. He keeps from the off he keeps from off the king's road for fear of citizenry. The little prairie wolves cry all night and dawn finds him in a grassy draw where he'd gone to hide from the wind. The hobbled mule stands over him and watches the east for light. The sun that rises is the color of steel. His mounted shadow falls for miles before him. He wears on his head a hat he's made from leaves and they have dried and cracked in the sun. And he looks like a raggedy man wandering from some garden where he used to frighten birds. Come evening, he tracks a spire of smoke rising oblique from among the low hills. And before dark, he hails up at the doorway of an old Anchorite nested away in the sod like a ground sloth, solitary half-mud, his eyes redrimmed as if locked in their cages with hot wires, but a ponderable body for that. He watched wordless while the kid eased down stiffly from the mule. A rough wind was blowing and his rags flapped about him. Seen ye smoke, said the kid. Thought you might spare a man a sup of water? The old hermit scratched in his filthy hair and looked at the ground. He turned and entered the hut, and the kid followed. Inside darkness and a smell of earth, a small fire burned on a dirt floor, and the only furnishings were a pile of hides in one corner. The old man shuffled through the gloom, his head bent to clear the low ceiling of woven lambs and mud. Woven limbs and mud. Like it fucking matters. He pointed down to where a bucket stood in the dirt. The kid bent and took up the gourd, floating there and dipped and drank. The water was salty, sulfurous. He drank on. You dumb fuck. You reckon I could water my old mule out there? The old man began to beat his palm with one fist and dart his eyes about. Be proud to fresh to fetch in some fresh. Just tell me where it's at. What you aim to water him with? The kid looked at the bucket and he looked around in the dim hut. I ain't drinking after no mule, said the hermit. Have you got no old bucket nor nothing? No, cried the hermit. No, I ain't. I was clapping the heels. He was, oh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph with this fucking book. He was clapping the heels of his clenched fist together at his chest. The kid rose and looked toward the door. I'll find something, he said. Where's the well at? Up the hill, follow the path. It's nigh too dark to see out here. It's a deep path. Follow ye feet. Follow ye mule. I can't go. He stepped out into the wind and looked at, about for the mule. But the mule wasn't there. Far to the south. Lighting flared soundlessly. He went up the path 
among the thrashing weeds and found the mule standing at the well. God, a hole in the sand with rocks piled about it, a piece of dry hide for a cover and a stone to weigh it down. I have no idea what's going on. There was a rawhide bucket with a rawhide bale and a rope of greasy leather. The bucket had a rock tied to the bale to help it to... I don't need this much fucking detail. I don't need this much detail. I need this character to get from point A to point B. I want to know what this character's thinking. I want to know what this character's feeling. I don't know anything about this character. I feel nothing for him. Why do I care about a fucking pail? Why do I care about a bucket? Why do I care about a fucking mule? I don't. We've formed no emotional connection to any of these things, and yet we're going to go ahead and just detail the fucking grass that's growing around, even though it's apparently in texas we're gonna grow we're gonna detail cactuses that we're gonna shove up some old hermit's ass because he's being an asshole to us why don't we talk about uh the lotion that he uses to jerk his dick with too he drew up three bucketfuls and held them so the mule would not spill them and then he put the cover back over the well and led the mule back down the path to the hut I thank ye for the water, he called. The hermit appeared darkly in the door. Just stay with me, he said. That's all right. Best stay, it's fixing a storm. You reckon? I reckon, and I reckon what right. Well, bring ye bed, bring ye possibles. He uncinched and threw down the saddle and hobbled the mule foreleg to rear and took his bed rolled in. There was no light save the fire, and the old man was squatting by it tailor-wise. Anywheres, anywheres, he says. Where are you saddle at? The kid gestured with his chin. Don't leave it out yonder. Something will eat it. This is a hungry country. He went out and ran into the mule into the dark. It had been standing, looking at the fire. Get away, fool, he said. He took up the saddle and went back in. Now, pull that door to four ye blow away, said the old man. The door was a mass of planks on leather hinges. He dragged it across the dirt and fastened it by its leather latch. I take it you lost your way, said the hermit. No, I went right to it. Jesus, Mary, fucking, oh my God. We made it 19 pages in and that's after me skipping a few. I, I can't do this anymore, people. This, this is the new game of the podcast I get. Uh, let's see how fast Patrick can make it through a book before throwing it across the room. My copy of Blood Meridian is laying on my floor right now because I never care to read this again. I'm probably going to give my Cormac McCarthy books away. I'm probably going to put them in a free library and let someone else take them because, my God, I cannot stand this man's writing. Uh, again, am I supposed to to love his writing? Am I supposed to be in awe of his wonderful poetic prose? No, fuck that. This man is pretentious as shit, not using quotation marks and proper punctuation, putting comma splices in places. Fuck him. The literary world is full of pretentious bullshit, and I'm fucking over it, for God's sakes. I hate writers. My God, I'm going to give it up. I'm going to fucking move to 
Sambuca Lane, where Crosby, Stills, and Nash are buried. And I hope Young is there too so I can piss on his grave. And then I'm going to dig his body up. I'm going to put coffee grounds in his eyeballs. And I'm going to dance around it. None of that made any sense, but that's essentially what I just read out of that book. That was more entertaining than anything I read from the book. See, I too can just string random words and phrases together and somehow make sense out of them. That's not fucking writing. Okay, I've had enough people. I really have. This upcoming week, I'm going to have time off from work. And I'm going to be working on the next episode of the podcast. It's going to be Ken Price, 2015, a novella. And I'm going to record it and release it as one episode instead of parts. So it may be long, but at least I won't lose half my audience after the first episode. So... This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Stop reading. It's bad for you.